The following sermon is presented by Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. Well, please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. We want to continue in our study of this wonderful epistle, Ephesians chapter 4. My wife loves to give gifts. She is a great gift giver, and she loves to bless our family with gifts. It was our first Christmas married almost 20 years ago, and uh, I was trying to guess what she got me. I knew she had gotten me something. I may have told you this story before. So I was trying to guess, honey, did you, did you get me some books? I'm not telling, she said. And then, she said, and then I said, did you get me some, some clothes? Maybe that's what you got me. She said, I'm, I'm not telling. Did, did you get me a watch? I'm not telling. Did you get me a shop vacuum? No. <laughs> Instantly, I knew what she had gotten me for, for Christmas, and she took it back. <laughs> so I didn't get it that year. My wife is a great gift giver. She loves to serve our family. She loves to bless our kids, bless me by giving gifts. And she loves to lavish those gifts on those that she loves and in our family. In a very, very small way, that, that's what Christ is like. Christ loves to lavish gifts upon those whom he loves dearly, his family, his church, the bride of Christ. He is the great gift giver, and Christ loves to lavish and, and give gifts to those whom he loves. But these gifts that, that Christ gives are, are not gifts wrapped in wrapping paper. They're not given at, at Christmas time or at birthdays or special occasions. And they're not simply meant to bring happiness or joy to someone. The gifts that, that Christ gives are gifts given to edify the church. Presence, as you were, as it were, given to, to build up the body of Christ and promote the, the growth and the maturity of the bride, the, the church, the body of believers known as Christ's bride. They're for the purpose of building us up and growing us in Christ's likeness. These are gifts, and we call them spiritual gifts. If you were here a couple years ago, we actually did a summer study on the issue of spiritual gifts and understanding what they are and what they're for and their importance. And we come this morning to another passage of Scripture that really explains for us the importance of these wonderful gifts known as spiritual gifts. You may remember in that series a couple years ago that we said that spiritual gifts are God-given abilities for service within the body of Christ for the edification and growth and maturity of his church. They're divine enablements for ministry by the Holy Spirit used to promote the health and the growth of his bride. These are very different from talents and abilities that you may have naturally. Some of you are, are good at singing or music or art or sports. Those are talents. Those are natural abilities that you just happen to be good at because of how God has blessed you just by being a person. Spiritual gifts are different than that. Spiritual gifts are divine enablement. They are spiritually bestowed gifts as a result of being a Christian, having the Holy Spirit living in you, given to you by Christ for the purpose of helping others become more like Jesus. 
These are what are known as spiritual gifts. And when you employ them and when you use them, you become a channel of Christ to others. And as we begin to link up in the use of our spiritual gifts, we begin to serve each other. And Christ flows from us, from one to another. And the result is Christ comes pouring out of us for the purpose of edifying and building up his church. It is this issue that Paul now begins to identify here in Ephesians chapter 4. I invite you to follow along as I read our text for this morning, Ephesians 4, verses 7 through 11. Paul writes, he says, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. This is... One of the four primary texts in the New Testament that deals with the issue of spiritual gifts. And you remember that the context of this passage is set in the context of unity. If you were with us last Sunday, you remember that we talked about the importance of the unity of the church. We just sang about it. One body, one Christ, one Father, one Spirit. There is a unity within the church. And if you look in verse 3, Paul says, you make sure you be diligent To preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He says you must work at this. You must put forth some effort in your relationships within the church to make sure that you are unified. Now you are practically or positionally unified in Christ. But there is a a practical oneness that needs to be worked out in everyday life. And so he says in verse 3, you be diligent. You work hard. You make every effort and you put forth some spiritual sweat in your relationships so there's nothing between you, between you and a fellow brother or sister in Christ. Verse 3 says you need to preserve the unity of the Spirit. That, that, that word preserve means to guard something valuable. You need to guard the valuable unity that we enjoy as a church. You've got to guard that. You've got to work hard to make sure that that's a practical reality. So he is saying here in the first part of Ephesians 4, you've got to maintain this unity. You've got to work at it. You've got to be diligent. You don't got to, you've got to make sure you don't give up on it. So we said last week, that's why we need to reconcile with each other. When we offend each other, when we hurt each other, when we do something that we know has hurt another believer, we have to go to them and seek forgiveness and reconcile Very, very important. But now, starting in verse 7, Paul changes gears. And he moves from the concept of unity to the concept of diversity. If you look in verse 7, you'll notice that the word at the beginning of the verse is the word but. An adversative conjunction. Showing us that what came before that is in contrast to what comes after that. So here Paul, in verses 3 through 6 is telling us about unity and the importance of unity. But now in verse 7, he changes gears and he begins to talk about diversity. 
He moves from unity to diversity, from our similarities to our differences, from our what we have common in Christ to where we differ. This is very important. You need to understand this because it is our diversity that promotes our unity. Let me say that again. It's our diversity that causes our unity. See, God hasn't made us all alike. And aren't you grateful for that? Aren't you so grateful that we don't come here and we all look the same and we all think the same and we all have the same backgrounds? That would be boring, wouldn't it? God has made us all different and all unique. And so the strength of our unity comes about as a result of our diversity. Notice in verse 6, he said, There's one God, one Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. He's talking there about unity. We have the same Father, and that Father is over all things, and He's through all things, and He's in all things. That's speaking of unity. But now in verse 7, He says something different. He says, but to each one. See the difference? But to each one of you. There's something unique. There's something different. There's something special about each one of you. Unity, verse 6. Diversity, verse 7. There's a change. There's a change here. He wants us to understand that it is our diversity that makes us unique. It is our differences that actually contribute to our unity and us being one body, one group of believers functioning together for the same cause and the same reason. Unity can only come from diversity. Just look at your body. You're not one big walking ear. You're you're not one big walking foot. You're not just a, a giant eye kind of bobbing around and trying to get through life. Right? You have different parts, different pieces, different functions. Your, your liver performs a function that the arm can't do. And, and your nose performs a function that your feet can't do. And, and your hair, which some of us are lacking in, but it, it contributes to the function of the body. Each one's got its own different, unique piece. And it is the diversity that promotes our unity. I want to show you this morning four features of spiritual gifts that promote diversity and unity within the church. Four features of spiritual gifts that promote our unity and our diversity in the church. We're only going to get through a couple of these this morning. But let's see how far we can get as we understand these features of spiritual gifts. Now, before we get into this, I want to say that many of you are serving Many of you are using your gifts. Many of you are functioning within the bride of Christ here at Maranatha. You are involved. You are are busy. You are engaged. You are using your gifts. You're serving. You you are a vital, integral part of, of this bride. And we thank you. We thank you for your service. We thank you for using your gifts here. We're so grateful for your willingness to contribute to the work of the ministry here at Maranatha. Or some of you who may not be in that case. And some of you here this morning may be more pulled back. You're, you're more reserved. You're, 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 you're not wanting to get into the play yet. You're kind of on the sidelines. You're maybe on the bench. Or maybe you're just a spectator. You're just kind of watching from the sidelines as, as things happen around you. And if that's you this morning, you need to hear very clearly from God's word that that's not how God has designed it. God wants you in the game. He wants you playing. He wants you off the bench. 
He wants you serving. And we can't have here at this church the 80-20 rule, which says that 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people. That can't happen. Nor at this church do we have one minister. I'm not it. We don't have four ministers. The elders aren't it. There are 200 ministers in this church. That's how we need to view this. Every single one of you here this morning contributes to the work of this ministry. And we have to fight hard here at Maranatha against the clergy-laity gap. You understand what I mean by that? There is in our day this mentality that says the clergy, the, the, the people that we pay to do the work of the ministry, that's their job. And we just kind of show up and go along with it. No, that is wrong. There should be no clergy-laity gap. You're going to see in the next, com- next coming weeks... But the job of elders and pastors and teachers is to equip you to do the work of the ministry. It's very serious. This may be a paradigm shift for some of you. This may radically reorient how you think church goes and how the church operates. But Paul wants us to understand very clearly here that it is our diversity and the use of the gifts within the body of Christ that actually promote our unity. Let's look at these four features of spiritual gifts that promote this unity and this diversity. Number one, I want, to show you, I want to show you the presence of these gifts. The presence of the gifts. I want you to notice in verse 7 that Paul says, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now I want to just pull some features out here. I want you to, to see a number of Elements of this first one. First, I want you to notice that these gifts are the result of grace. He says in verse 7, to each one of us, grace was given. Now, when we think about grace, we either think about common grace, the grace that God gives us in giving us food and shelter and people and family. That's common grace. Everyone receives common grace. Or maybe we just want to think about grace in in terms of salvation, that God has granted us salvation through Christ, and we've been the recipients of great grace and mercy and kindness and compassion, and we think of grace only in those terms. Paul's not talking here just about common grace. He's not talking about special grace in the form of salvation. He's actually using the word grace here to refer to spiritual gifts. Charis. To each one of us, grace has been given. To each one of us, Grace has been shown to us in the form of spiritual gifts. So important for us to understand that it's all by grace. Some of you here this morning have the more upfront gifts. You're leaders. You're teachers. You do the upfront stuff. And maybe you can look at yourself and you can start to say, well, man, I've really come. I've really progressed. I've really done something here. And God wants you to understand It's all grace. It's all grace. You haven't earned it. You haven't worked for it. You haven't done anything to compel God to give you these gifts. And the flip side is also true. Some of you are here this morning and and maybe you have the the, the, what we would call the lesser gifts or what you might think are the lesser gifts. The the more behind the scenes gifts, the serving gifts, the mercy gifts, the giving gifts. And maybe you think, "I, I don't have the upfront gifts. I must have the less important gifts. And God wants you to understand It's grace. And grace is grace. 
No matter how you receive it, no matter how you get it, grace is grace. So whatever gift you've been given in the form of spiritual service to the body of Christ, it's all grace. And when God gives grace, he doesn't give bad grace, does he? He gives good grace. This is the first thing you need to understand about the presence of these gifts is that they come from grace. Secondly, you need to understand that they come to each one of us. Look at verse 7. He says, to each one of us. Grace was given to every single believer, wherever you live, no matter where you are, however you come to Christ, you have grace. You have grace in the form of spiritual gifts, and it comes to every single Christian. In fact, Paul wants us to understand this so much, he actually throws the word each one at the beginning of the sentence. And when you want to emphasize something in Greek, that's what you do. You don't underline it, you don't highlight it, you don't star it, star it. you throw it at the beginning of the sentence. That's what he's done. Each one of you have received grace. It doesn't matter how long you've come, been a believer, it doesn't matter how you've come to Christ, it doesn't matter your background, it doesn't matter your upbringing, it doesn't matter, none of that matters. If you are in Christ, you have spiritual gifts. It says it was given. Look at verse 7. It says it was given. And I want you to notice, first of all, that it's passive voice and it's an aorist tense, which means it was done typically in the past at the moment of your conversion. And it was done passively, meaning you didn't seek for these things. You didn't do anything to compel God to give you certain gifts. You just received them. They were given to you. You were graced with them. And God has given them to you for his purposes. This is grace in the form of spiritual gifts. And every single one of you has them. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 7, he says, To each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To everyone. To every believer in Christ. Verse 12 or verse 11 of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He says that the Spirit works all these things distributing to each one. Every Christian. Peter acknowledges this as well. First Peter 4 verse 10. He says, to each one has been received a special gift. So you need to understand that this is not something for super spiritual Christians. This is not just something for those who have arrived in the Christian life. This is for every single believer. At the moment of your salvation, you received grace in the form of spiritual gifts. So, first thing you need to understand, it's by grace. Second thing you need to understand is that it's given to every believer. Third thing you need to understand is that it's been distributed to you by Christ. This is phenomenal. I want you to notice in verse 7. He says that this was done according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, track with me. This was done according to the measure of Christ's gift. The word measure is the word metron, where we get the name metronome. If you're musical, you have on your piano a metronome, and that that measures out the beat. It measures out the rhythm. That's what the word means, to measure, to give in proportion, to determine a certain extent. And Paul's point here is that every single believer has a spiritual gift that God has individually measured out to you. He's put it together in the right amount, 
the right proportions, the right measurements, and he has endowed you, and he has bestowed upon you the exact measure of spiritual gift that he wants you to have to fulfill in the body of Christ. You need to think about that. You you need to let that kind of sink into your heart. That God didn't just kind of on a whim, just kind of throw out some spiritual gifts and wherever they land, they land. And if you're in the right spot at the right time, great. That's not how he delivers them. He measures them out according to the measure of his gift in perfect amount, perfect proportion. And he assigns to each individual believer the exact measure that they need. We could say he personalizes it. So the gifts that you have, the abilities that you have to function within the body of Christ have been specifically measured out by Christ for you to fulfill within this church for the edification of the body to the glory of Christ. That's what makes this phenomenal. Romans 12 verse 3 says, Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to, but think of having sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. He's measured it out exactly for you. That means that there's a diversity of gifts. Think about this with me. God doesn't just give you one gift. He doesn't just say, okay, you are a teacher and that's it. If that was the case, then every single teacher could be replaced by every other teacher. That's not how it works. God specifically mixes gifts So that you have a single gift, which is a combination of all the gifts in different proportions and different measurements. So that your contribution to the church is unique. Paul doesn't list for us the gifts here in Ephesians 4. He lists gifted people in verse 11. We're going to come to this. He lists in verse 11, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. Those are gifted people, gifted men given to the church. But he doesn't list the gifts in particular. We need to go to Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 for that. Let me just remind you what some of these gifts are. Just listen. In Romans 12, verses 4 through 8, it says, Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith. If service, in his serving. Or he who teaches, in his teaching. He who exhorts, in In his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, and he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. These are some of the gifts. Leading, service, prophecy, giving, exhortation, mercy. Those are some of the gifts that are represented within the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 lists for us other gifts. Word of wisdom, word of knowledge, faith, gifts of healing, affecting of miracles, The distinguishing of spirits, prophecy, tongues. These are different gifts that are available for Christ to give to the church. Now, we don't have time to go through all this, but we would believe that of these gifts, there are three kind of categories. There are serving gifts. There are speaking gifts. There are sign gifts. The serving gifts are gifts like mercy and giving Maybe exhortation, service. Speaking gifts are those gifts like teaching and preaching and exhortation. 
We believe that those first two categories of gifts are still in operation today. But that third category of gifts, like the working of tongues and miracles, are not in operation today. Now, be very careful. We believe God works today in miracles, but not through people who have the gift of miracles. We believe that those were for a unique time, for a unique purpose. That time has passed off the scene. And so the gifts that God gives to the church now are speaking gifts and sign gifts. And verse 7 of Ephesians 4 says, All this is done according to the measure of Christ's gift. So God and Christ, in their infinite wisdom, they mix together the perfect proportion of gifts and he puts them into your possession to use for the edification of the church. They're not mass-produced. They're not rubber-stamped. You don't just kind of walk down an assembly line and get them. No, they've been perfectly matched together and put together and measured out for you by Christ. Perhaps you could think of a palette. I'm no artist. But if you could think of a palette with all the, the colors on them, and that artist, that master artist, can, can take the, the brush and pull some of the different colors from that palette and kind of mix them together and, and create this very unique, very special, very one-of-a-kind kind of color that comes from the different mixing of those colors on the palette. That's what Christ does. Christ takes from this various palette of spiritual gifts and he begins to kind of mix in in different measures what your gift needs to be. And so maybe you're strong in this one and strong in this one, but you get a little bit of this one and maybe not much of this one. And he mixes all that together and he assigns it to you when you become a believer in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. He wants you to use them now in the edification and the growth of the church. So technically... You don't have spiritual gifts. You have a spiritual gift. And that gift is a combination of the various gifts that Christ mixes together and gives to you. You don't have a kind of all of the gifts. You have a various mixture of what Christ wants you to have. This is what Paul wants us to understand. That yes, we're to be unified. We're to work diligently to make sure that our our relationships are good with each other so we're unified. But in the context of our church, there's diversity. There's different gifts, different functions that contribute to our unity. Now, let me give you a little preview. Here's where we're going over the next couple weeks with this. I want you to skip down to verse 11 through 13. Let me just give you a little little preview of, of why this is important for understanding He says in verse 11 that he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. You see some of those words in there? Look at unity and look at maturity. And look at building up. And look at the stature. And look at the fullness of Christ. You see those words in there? This is the goal of spiritual gifts. It's not for you. The goal is for the edification of the church. To building up. To promoting unity. To promoting growth. And helping us all become like Christ. That's why you have a spiritual gift. Now, listen. 
Does any believer have all the gifts? Of course not, right? No one believer has all the gifts. Who's the only person who's ever walked this earth who has all the gifts? Christ. Christ was the perfect teacher. And Christ perfectly demonstrated mercy. And Christ perfectly showed grace. And Christ was the perfect demonstration of faith. He had all of the gifts in himself as one person. But no believer has all that. A track with me. If the church is going to display the fullness of Christ, end of verse 13... If we're going to display the fullness of Christ and no single believer has all the gifts, then every single believer is crucial and important to the functioning of the church so that we can demonstrate the fullness of Christ. Do you understand that? Every single Christian has to be using their gifts within the body of Christ if we're going to have a full demonstration and a full picture of Christ. That's the goal. That's the aim. That's what we're shooting for here at Maranatha is we want to see Christ formed in us individually and Christ formed in us corporately. Well, I don't have all the gifts and you don't have all the gifts. And so I need you and you need me and vice versa. You get it? Christ wants every believer to use their gifts in the body of Christ so that the body displays all the gifts in their completeness. And only when we as individuals function and use our gifts can we as a body corporately display who Christ is. Listen, let me get real personal. My spiritual gift is a mix of teaching, preaching, and leadership. I know that. Just over the years of serving in the church, I know that's how God has gifted me. He's gifted me as a teacher, as a preacher, and as a leader. And you need me to help you become stronger in those areas. You need me to help you grow in teaching and preaching and in leadership. But I'll be real honest with you. I'm not very strong in mercy. And I'm not super strong in in giving. And I need to grow in service. And so I need you to help me grow in those areas. Those of you who are out there who are great servants, I need to learn from you. And those of you who are strong givers, I need to learn from you. And those of you who show mercy, you need to be an example to me so I can grow in those areas. This is the beauty and the wonder of spiritual gifts in the body of Christ. When they all operate together, we get a comprehensive picture of who Christ is, and it causes us to grow up into the fullness of Christ. Some of you love puzzles. And you know when you sit down to do a puzzle that that thing is not complete until you've got every piece in place. And if there's a piece missing, you are fanatical about finding that piece, right? You can't go to bed until you found that piece because it's not complete. That's what the church is like. We do not get the full picture of Christ until every piece is in place. And if there's a piece missing, the church is not going to f- display the fullness of Jesus Christ. That's why, listen very carefully. That's why it is so detrimental to the body of Christ when believers don't minister their gifts. 
You take away from the fullness of Christ. You take away from the full expression of him. You hinder the rest of the body and we limp along looking for that next piece to complete the puzzle. That's why we need every believer ministering in the church using their gifts. Otherwise, we struggle and the picture of Christ is incomplete. So, are you using your gift? Are you serving? Are you functioning within the church? Are you, are you contributing to the church so that we learn about Christ through you and you learn about Christ from us? So I don't know where to get started. Start serving. That's it. What do you like to do? What do you enjoy to do? What, what, what do you get excited about? Start doing it. If you like teaching, come up to us and say, hey, I'm going to teach. Say, like, great. Here, here's a place to teach. Are you, are you good at giving? Great. Excellent. We'll show you some needs and tell you what those needs are. Then, then go at it. Good at exhortation? Great. Start exhorting. You don't need a stamp of approval from the organization to start doing these things, right? You don't need to, to have the blessing of, of everyone in leadership to, to say, okay, here's what we want you to do. You need to start doing this. We can't orchestrate all of those things, but you can start using your gifts and seeing where Christ leads. So, this is the presence of the gifts. God has, through Christ, given us grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. Are you serving? Let me show you number two. The provider of the gifts. Now, i got to warn you. If you're sleeping... If your neighbor's sleeping, you better wake them up at this point because if you don't track here, you're not going to get... You have to pay attention because this is one of the most interesting, intricate, amazing passages of Scripture. But if you're snoozing, you're losing because you're not going to hear and get the picture here. So track with me and watch because what Paul is about to do is he's about to demonstrate for us how Christ has the right to give spiritual gifts in proportion that he does. Right? So how has Christ earned the right to distribute gifts as he does? That's a question Paul answers. Look at verse 8. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. What is that? Paul quotes in verse 8 from Psalm 68, particularly verse 18. Now, we don't have time, but if you go back to look at Psalm 68, you will find that it is a psalm about a military victor who has conquered his enemies and he comes back. Now, let me just read for you verse 18 of Psalm 68. It says, You have ascended on high, and you have led captive your captives, and you received gifts among men. So here's the picture. Track with me. The picture is when a king of Israel would go out to battle, he would do war with the enemy, and he'd go out and fight them. And if he would win, he would come back. And when he came to the city, he would ascend the hill. 
the hill, Mount Zion, the hill outside of Jerusalem. He would ascend that hill in victory, and he would be up there, and he would be on this crowning hill of Jerusalem, the place of great victory. And so he would ride up to the top of that hill, having conquered the enemies, and in tow behind him would be two groups of people. One group of people would be the enemies, the spoils of victory, those people that the conquering king was victorious over, the prisoners of the foreign nation that they had just conquered. And and so behind this conquering king, as he ascended up to this hill, were these group of prisoners that he was dragging back with him to become the servants of Israel. Now, there's a second group. And the second group, look at verse 8. He led captive a host of captives. The second group of people were Israelites who had been conquered by the enemy, whom the conquering king now goes in to liberate and takes them back to the city of Jerusalem, back to Israel, to be with him and the nation once again. You've got two groups of people. You've got prisoners who have been conquered by the king, and you've got Israelites who've been set free from that foreign nation whom they were captured by, who the conquering king now comes in and sets them free and liberates them. That's the idea. This is exactly the picture that Paul has in mind here in Ephesians chapter 4. When Christ died on the cross, he took two groups of people with him. He entered into a battle with Satan and his demons and his hosts, and he won that battle. And behind him now were two groups of people. One, the demons in defeat and sinners who have been set free by Christ. Now, let me explain a little bit further. Verse 9. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Who is this talking about? This is Christ. Christ is the one who ascended and Christ is the one who descended. Now we know of his ascension. We're all familiar with that. Christ died on the cross. He was placed in the tomb. Three days later, he rose from the dead. He was on the earth for 40 days. At the end of 40 days, he he ascended back into heaven on a cloud, and the people saw him going away. And the angels came and said, those who are standing there, you've seen him go away in a cloud. You will see him return on a cloud someday. He ascended back to heaven. But this text also tells us that he descended. What is that? How did Christ descend? Well, he descended in a few ways. He descended in the incarnation because he left heaven to live on earth. He he left the throne of God, the place of heaven, and he descended to earth to become a man. That's part of his descension. He descended from the realms of heaven in the presence of God. He came down to earth to live among us to be our Savior. He descended, but it didn't stop there. He also descended to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ willingly endured the wrath of God on the cross, and he he went to death upon the most inhumane way to die. He, He descended into death, but it didn't stop there. He descended into the grave. And when Christ died, his body was placed into the tomb. He descended from heaven to earth. He descended from life to death. 
He descended from walking this earth to the tomb. Descend, descend, descend. Now, his body was in the tomb. Where was his spirit? He wasn't dead. His body was dead. Where was his spirit? Where was Christ between his death and his resurrection? If you are with us a couple years ago, we preached on this. So let me review for you what we said. Peter answers the question. 1 Peter 3.18 says that Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Listen, Christ was put to death in the flesh, but he was made alive in the spirit. When he died and his body was placed in the tomb, his body was dead. He was dead in the flesh, but he was very much alive in the spirit. So where was he? For those three days between death and resurrection, where was he? Peter tells us the next verse. 1 Peter 3.19 says, In which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. You know where Christ was? He was proclaiming to the spirits now in prison. He descends from heaven to earth. He descends from life to death. He descends into the tomb. And then his spirit descends even further down into the spirits now in prison. Are you thoroughly confused? What is this? Christ went to Hades between his death and his resurrection. Listen carefully. Not to pay for sin. When he died on the cross and he said, it is finished. It was done. The sacrifice had been paid. He didn't go to hell to pay for our sins. But he went to Hades, the place of the spirits, the place of departed spirits, the place where spirits went in the Old Testament. So if you can kind of picture Hades and a line between it, and on one side of Hades, the upper level of Hades, you had the spirits of those who were in God, who were believers. They were in a place of joy and happiness in Hades in the presence of God. But there was a lower part of Hades where the spirits of the dead unbelievers went. And not only were the spirits of the dead unbelievers there, there were bound demons there. Okay, now, where did those come from? This is all review from a couple years ago. Genesis chapter 6 tells us that right before the flood, there were sons of God who were demons who came to live on earth to cohabitate with women, to have children and offspring with them, to create an unredeemable race. Second Peter says that. Jude verse 9 says that. I'm not making this stuff up. Okay, read Second Peter. Read Jude. These were demons who came in the form of humans who cohabitated with women to produce an offspring that was unredeemable, to thwart God's plan of redemption. In fact, it was so wicked at that time that what did God do? He sent a flood and wiped out this entire humanity upon the face of the earth. Because as it says in Genesis 6, 5, every thought and every intention of their heart was evil and wicked. So what did God do to those demons 
that perpetrated such a heinous act. He sent them to Hades in a special place of Hades known as Tartarus. Read 2 Peter 3, Jude 9. And he sent them there to be permanently bound. There are free demons and there are bound demons. And the bound demons are in this place in Hades and Christ between his death and his resurrection, Peter tells us, goes to the place of the spirits who are in prison, and that's where Christ is, between his death and his resurrection. What is he doing there? First Peter 3.19 says, He went and made proclamation to them. It's not the word euangelizo. It's not evangelize. He didn't go to Hades to evangelize these fallen demons. It's the word Caruso, preach. He preached victory. And he went to Hades and he said, I win, you lose. His body's in the grave. His spirit has descended in the lower part of Hades. And there he made a proclamation of triumph in spite of what looked like a victory for demons and Satan. That's the point of Ephesians 4. You see it? Ephesians 4 says he ascended, but what does it mean also except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He descended is himself also he who ascended far above all heavens. Now look at the end of verse 10. That he might fill all things. And what's one of the ways Christ fills all things? It's the end of verse 8. And he gave gifts to men. Here's the picture. Christ comes back from the grave, leading behind him two groups of people. Sinners who have been set free through his redemptive work on the cross and demons, fallen angels who have now been rendered the prisoner of the almighty king of kings. And that is what enables Christ to give gifts. That's what it gives him the authority. That is what has earned him the right to give gifts however he sees fit. He measures them out in perfect proportion because he's the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, who has conquered sin and conquered death and set captives free and risen from the dead and died on the cross to save us, but not just to save us, but to enable us to serve him through the giving of grace in the form of spiritual gifts. Does that put a little different onus upon spiritual gifts? Do you see that they're not optional? Do do you see that you can't treat spiritual gifts lightly when you contemplate the price it cost Christ to secure those gifts? He doesn't just toss gifts out in a random way, but thoughtfully and deliberately he gives a gift to each person having secured the right through his conquering sin and death on the cross to hand out and to deliver gifts. And so the point is, are you using your gifts? This is what Christ did to secure the ability and the right to deliver them to you. Are you using them? Are you serving Are you engaged in this church so we can all fill out the fullness of Christ? Well, that's the first two. 
There's two more. And you'll have to come back two weeks from now to get them. Father, thank you so much. This is truly a profound passage of Scripture. And Lord, it's really staggering to consider what Christ accomplished in order to secure our gifts and enable us to serve with His grace to fulfill and fill out the fullness of Christ in the church. Lord, it shows us what happens when some are not using their gifts. We're hindered. The fullness of Christ is inhibited. And so, Father, if there are any who are not engaged, Lord, use them. Convict them of their need to use their gift within the church so we can benefit and so you're glorified. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon presented at Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.